All right, all right, all right. 3 p.m. UTC. You know what that means. Good morning, everybody. No matter where you are, it's morning somewhere. So good morning and welcome to OP Radio number 11. We have a very special episode today. If you are involved with optimism at all or you know about optimism, you probably know who this person is, but I'm going to introduce them nonetheless. Today we have the smart contract Sherlock Holmes, the prince of protocols, meme lord, and supreme optimist, the one and only benevolent chaos monkey, possibly the creator of Bitcoin, and definitely one of the most interesting people I have the pleasure of knowing, Mr. Kelvin Fichter. Kelvin, how are you doing Hello, hello. I'm, thank you for the kind introduction. I'm very good. How are you? I'm good as well. I, I'm very well. Thank you. So a, um, a wonderful, what is it today? Wednesday? It's a wonderful Wednesday. It is a wonderful Wednesday. Wednesday. Where I am. It is. And it's about to get even better. That's right. Kelvin, you're probably one of the most requested guests on OP Radio. And that's no surprise. Every time I, I speak with Kelvin... It's always very fascinating and very interesting. So I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure what we have in store. I'm very excited, a little bit nervous, That's but it's, it's guaranteed to be good. I can tell you that. Kelvin, let's, let's, start, with, let's start with how you got started with Ethereum. I, I want to hear a little bit about that. Can you, oh boy. can you take us back to when young, I mean, you're still young, but when younger Mr. Victor first heard about Ethereum? Yeah. I mean, I first heard about Ethereum maybe like 2015. Yeah, I had I had just broken up with a girlfriend and I was like on a bus, you know, I was on a really long bus ride back to wherever I was I was going. And I was like, I need I need to involve myself in something else to kind of get my mind off of it. And I was just like I was just scrolling and Ethereum came up. And I and I read through the white paper. It was interesting. It was a good distraction, but I didn't really do anything with it. I was kind of just aware of it at that point, right? It's inter- it was it was cool, right? It was like Bitcoin, but not so boring. But then I really got into Ethereum in 2016 because I I was doing this internship in actually at a at a coal fired power plant in the UK. And I, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun, but I was, I was in Europe and I was like, well, you know, you can get these really cheap flights in Europe. And, and so I was like, well, I, you know, what can I do? What's, what's the most interesting thing I could do? I'll, I'll take Ryanair flights and I'm going to go around Europe. I'm going to do these hackathons. Cause I was like, well, why not? Right. Do I, I, you know, at that point I had a pretty good formula about how to win hackathons, a pretty good theory of, of, of winning hackathon projects. I've and heard this theory by the way, and I do think you you're onto something there. Do you want to drop that alpha or should we save it? Sure. Do you, no, do you want to tell people how to win? Yeah. Okay. Here's the theory of how to, how to win hackathon projects. The reality is that nobody, nobody at a hackathon expects you, right? Think from the perspective of a judge. None of the judges expect you to build a production app in two days. They all know it's not possible to build something. And they also all know that you're not going to be, you're not going to really take the code that you wrote and use it in production. You're, if, you're, if you really are going to take this into a real project, you're going you're gonna to update it. You're going to fix it. You're going to tweak it. You're going to rewrite it. 
And so the theory of hackathon projects is, well, I mean, the, the obvious thing is that the idea is way more valuable than the code. But I think the thing that people miss is that you really got to take that to heart. And my strategy was always that I would, I would spend the first half, at least the first half of every hackathon, just sitting in a room with my team coming up with ideas. And you know that you have a good hackathon idea when you're like when you're really, really excited, right? If you're coming up with your hackathon idea within the first hour of the hackathon, you're not doing it right. It should be like hour seven, you've gone through 20 different ideas, and this one is you're you're going crazy because of how good it is. And you really want to sell to the judges. That's the other thing, is the presentation is so important. You have to really nail that presentation down because it doesn't matter how good your thing is. If you don't nail the presentation down, code doesn't matter. And then, now, does that mean you're tailoring the project to the judge at all? Like, if you know something no. about the judge, you know what they like, or you're just saying you got to sell it no matter who they are. You got to sell it. The other, the other reality is that the 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 code, you know, like no, I mean, the code kind of matters, but it only it, like I I wrote a lot of you know web apps for hackathons that just looked good, and there was no like backend or anything. But it's not about the backend, right? It's a lot of the times it's about the idea that you're you're proposing and if the idea is interesting enough anyway let's we'll move on because that's that's my alpha focus on the idea really really focus on the pitch and the idea i think if people get nothing else from this and and there's there's they're going to get a lot more but that was some valuable stuff there you could take that advice and go just win hackathons that's right that's right and that's what i would do and and then I was like, well, what can I do in Europe? I got these cheap Ryanair flights. So I started flying around to different hackathons. And I went to this hackathon in Berlin. And I, I was like the only person there who didn't really speak any German. Except for this one other person. We got put on a team together. And, you know, at that point, I was really interested in doing... It was kind of a, a bank-themed hackathon. So I was really interested in doing an Ethereum hack. And just completely randomly, it turned out that this other person that I was on a team with was was an Ethereum core dev, an early Ethereum core dev working on C++ Ethereum, who had helped design dev P2P, the, the P2P stack that Ethereum uses. But take so it, these I, hackathons weren't like blockchain hackathons then. No, no, it wasn't a blockchain. It was like a bank hackathon. Like back then, you didn't really have these blockchain hackathons for the most part. You had like fintech hackathons that was kind got of got you theme. okay so it was a fintech hackathon and i did it with this guy and so then that's we started you know we got in touch and then a little bit later the same summer i went to another hackathon in london i think it was london it was like another another fintech bank hackathon where i met this team called oracleize and Oracleize was like a really, really early or like Oracle solution. It was one of the first Oracle solutions out there. And it was a generalized Oracle. It was really cool. You would give it a URL and it would actually give you like the response back with with a proof, an optional proof that the response was was the actual response that was signed by the remote server. And this is back in the day when Chainlink was still smartcontracts.com. This is before they really started do Chainlink started doing Oracle stuff. So I got, I got to see the beginning of Chainlink through that lens. It was, it was very interesting. That's a great domain name. Yeah, smartcontracts.com. I really want that domain. But yeah, so so I did this hackathon. I met this team, Oracleize, and and we won. 
we won the hackathon. We did this thing. It's kind of like an early browser wallet thing. It's kind of cool. And it, and it worked with, it, it was, you would plug in your Estonian ID card and it would deterministically generate a wallet from the secret in your Estonian ID card. So every Estonian citizen instantly got access to a, to a uh, wallet, which was really cool. And we won this hackathon. I won one Bitcoin, should have held on to that Bitcoin because it would have been worth a lot more these days, but whatever. And then they offered me a job. So I took a job with them for a little while. I was a little chaotic because I was still in school. And then, yeah, and it kind of went from there. I only worked the job at Oracle's for a couple months because I was really, there's too much stuff going on with school. And then eventually connections from that first person that I met in, in Berlin got me a job with Omise Go, which was a research job studying plasma, which as people know, was sort of the earlier you know, one of the early Ethereum L2 efforts. And then eventually Plasma led itself into Plasma Group, which was a sort of a nonprofit Plasma research org. That was me, Ben, Jing, and Carl. And then eventually Plasma Group turned into Optimism. So wild ride, wild ride. Yeah, that's great. I just want to point out one thing and then and then I have another question, which is in typical Kelvin fashion, you hacked the hackathon. So you figured out a way to hack the hackathon right. and 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 guarantee or or not if not guarantee improve your your odds of success. And I happen to know another a story of yours that I always thought was really fascinating and great, which is that at one point you were flipping sneakers, right? Programmatically. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Back that was college, before all this, right? Yeah, that was before. All, well, I was kind of in the middle of all this back in college. I was looking for a way to make money on the side and, and kind of use and, and hone my programming chops and back and and back then, like MEV didn't exist really. So so the closest thing was sneaker bots. Sneaker bots are like early MEV something for millennials, or for for Gen Z, I guess. OG yeah. MEV. OG MEV, absolutely. Nike. No. Yeah, sneaker bots were a great time. It's I eventually left because the community is kind of, and I, and I'm sure it's the same with the MEV community that it's it's very isolating. Because it's very it's hyper competitive, right? There's your margins are pretty low, but it was a yeah, it, you know, it was a great learning experience. That you kind of underestimate just how much effort goes into because because writing a script is easy, right? Writing a script to automate something is really straightforward. But there's there's a couple of really interesting things that go on behind the scenes in writing secret bots that you wouldn't immediately think of. There's a lot of understanding how the internal state of a website works so that you can abuse things to, to skip steps. The classic example of this was something that we would call pre-carding. Pre-carding was when you would put something, put an item in your cart and you would fill out the entire checkout flow until the very last step. And you would, you would queue that up in your, or you'd load that up in your state. And then when the actual item that you want drops, or you, you would have already at that point removed you, removed the old item from your cart, and then you add this new item to your cart, and, and you've already, from the perspective of the server, you've already completed most of the checkout flow, and so you can send a single request 
to complete the checkout flow as if you had completed the checkout flow with the, the item that you really wanted. And so there's a lot of like abusing the state of a website to cut out requests. And then the other side of it is like, you know, captchas. Captchas are always a really funny one. People think that captchas actually prevent bots. They don't. Captchas help bots counterintuitively because bots can solve. If you didn't know this, captchas are valid for two minutes, or they were back when I was doing this. And so you would just queue up valid captcha tokens and then and then you know, you would at, let's say something drops at noon. At 11:58, you start queuing up valid captcha tokens. By the, the second it turns 12, you can use those captcha tokens to buy sneakers, and everybody else has to sit there for 15 seconds clicking these images. So <laughs> captchas. The only thing that captcha did was help bots. Anyway, there was a whole interesting. Bunch of is really that fun engineering in in the sneaker bot world? Is that still the case? Do you know with captchas, or have um, they gotten better? I mean. I don't know. I'm sure that ca- I mean the captures still definitely have like a time to live. I don't know. I don't. I, I haven't done this in so long that I don't know if they've gotten any better. But you know, yeah, it's a cat and I mouse mean, game. It, from a user experience perspective, like they've never really been good. You know, you gotta. No. Sometimes you know they're asking me to to identify a bus, and I'm like, do you want all the parts of the bus? Like, if this tile's touching the bus, does that count? They're confusing. But okay, I I really love that story for a variety of reasons, one of which is because I think it really demonstrates, Kelvin, you have this like very, in in my opinion, like a true hacker spirit. And what I mean by that is I think that you really are very skilled, very adept, and also delight in exploring things and figuring out how to break them or exploit them and then redesigning them so maybe they're invulnerable. And people who follow you on Twitter or, or hang out on Twitter, maybe they follow you because they've seen one of your exploit threads, for which I think you've developed quite a reputation. Basically, if there's like a, this is happening a lot with like these bridge exploits and Kelvin, what, what, when, once one of these exploits would happen, Kelvin would immediately sort of jump on it. Like I said, the Sherlock Holmes of the blockchain and basically figure out what happened in a very short amount of time and then write a synopsis of it, right? Like a little tweet thread postmortem of the exploit. So I think the sneaker story shows that you've always had this inclination to, to do that. Is is that, do you, do you see that about yourself or? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think sneakers are probably the first place where I really, really picked that up just because it's like, if you really need, if you want to understand how to write a sneaker bot, you have to really understand the website that you're interacting with. And then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're analyzing requests and you're looking at the source code and you're trying to understand what's happening. And there's a lot of, I have a lot of good stories of like managing to buy something before it was supposed to go live. And then, you know, I, I have an email thread of some, of a CEO of one of these companies being like, mm, how did you do that? And I was like, I'm not telling you unless you want to give me an internship. And they didn't they didn't give me the internship, so I didn't tell them. But there's a lot of like, yeah, you just you just crack things, you know? Like these websites don't want you to do these things and they can't stop you. So you can just do it. Yeah. Yeah, I think real world superpowers do exist. I would say like speaking multiple languages is one example. And I would also Absolutely. say speaking computer languages uh, being able to program is another I example agree. i agree strongly if you if you can do that nowadays you can write your own ticket i mean that's you got the keys to the kingdom right there 
I wasn't kidding when I said Kelvin's one of the most interesting people I know. When we were playing OP Craft, he figured out in a very short amount of time, and in case you don't know, OP Craft was this really awesome voxel-based game built on an on a op chain by the good folks at Lattice. And Kelvin figured out very quickly how to hack this thing so that you could basically like fly, get unlimited resources and a bunch of cool stuff. So it really it really is like a superpower that Kelvin possesses. Okay, so I love all that. Okay, so let's go back to you met Ben, Jing, Carl. They were working at a place called Plasma Group, which then turned into Optimism PBC, right? The Public Benefit Corporation. And maybe just like at the start of that, at the start of Optimism, why did you want to be involved in this project? Like what about it appealed to you? Yeah, well, okay. So, so it was a bit of a weird time that I was going through. So we, we started Plasma Group and I was working at Plasma Group for a while, but I, I ended up leaving because I was kind of disillusioned with crypto in general. Like I can go through that in more detail later, but there, you know, there were a lot of different things. Plasma was so annoying. Plasma was the worst. And and I think everyone was kind of sick of Plasma. And there were so many things with Plasma that just didn't make any sense at the time. And it and it really felt limiting. And then and then we threw this conference called Scaling Ethereum. And that's kind of when really when the idea of the optimistic roll-up took off. And and then, you know, I think Carl Carl kind of immediately saw the value. But at that time, I was like, I was writing a lot of the code for Plasma Group, and we had just done all this work on this Plasma thing. And 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 all of a sudden, we went to start doing this optimistic roll-up thing, and I was like, oh, my God, I need a break. So I took a That's break. That's going to be painful, right? You've put all this work into something, and then you totally switch directions. Yeah, it was painful. It was also in the middle of, of a lot of discussions I was having with myself about what what crypto was all about and and you know what it was good for and and what the different motivations of people in the space were and and it was really going meta and trying to understand my own my own you know role in the space and so i decided to take a year well a little less than a year off and yeah i spent that year doing a lot i bought a mainframe which was weird that took up way too much of my time what do you mean you bought a mainframe, like an old computer? Yeah, like a, like a you know like a two ton. <laughs> of course you did. Nice. Did you were you were you programming on that thing? No. Were you like feeding it bits of paper? I was gonna make it into like a mixed art piece furniture computer. I wanted to do like a, I wanted to have like a a, a desk, and a table that would actually have like computing power in it. Thought that was a really interesting concept. But anyway, and mm. then I also started working on this like East Two book. I started doing all these different things, and then and then I started running out of money, and I and I thought to myself, what should I do? And and at that point, optimism was still, I guess it was four people, and it was four people that I really really liked. Benjing, Carl, and Kevin. And, you know, at first it was just sort of a, an interesting technical project to be working on. I mean, and, and and with people that I I liked and I trusted. And you know, I if I was gonna go into this startup, the startup side of things, those were the people that I wanted to be doing it with. So so I asked them if they were down to have me again, and and they said yes. 
That's sort of why I one could do worse basing one's decision on on the company involved. I would say I think that's a good. Yeah, I mean, metric that was really the, the thing, you know, at the very beginning, it was about if, if I'm going to be working on something. You know, I always knew that, that you know, when you join a startup like that, it's a, it's a huge commitment. You're not you're not there for a year. You're there for many, many years. And, and, and I wanted to do that with people that I that I trusted would have my back and they and I trusted that they did. But then, you know, I think that that really the thing that kept me in optimism was that the mission is I truly believe by far the most the most radical and and also and the most ambitious mission in all of crypto. I I don't think it compares. I don't think you can point to a single other project that really and and I and I think optimism still to this day needs to do a better job at communicating this publicly and I guess me being here is sort of part of that. But but yeah, I think by far the goals that optimism has and the vision that optimism has for what the systems that we're building are and what they could be is in my opinion far more interesting and far more lucid than than pretty much any other you know, project in a similar position, right? Any, any of this like chain layer, chain layer projects. And that I would, I would agree before we get into kind of what that is, I'm curious, Kelvin, if you're comfortable sharing, it sounds like, okay, you took a little break and you, you, you had a big think, right? You had this conversation with yourself. Did you come back with like renewed sort of conviction and a clearer sense of what your, what your role in the space was? You know, I, I think, one thing that I came back with was sort of an understanding that I can't, you, you kind of just have to do things sometimes, right? There's sort of, there's this, you know, man, who, which, what was that article that was, that, that mentions this, this idea that, that, you know, people, people who are afraid to act sort of retreat into knowledge, right? And I think I was in mm-hmm. that sort of mm-hmm. stage of my life where I was like, you know that the, there are so many potential unintended consequences to the work that I'm that I'm doing. That sh- you know, maybe I just need to study it more. Maybe I just need to read more and and understand more. And then maybe I can you know I can somehow squeeze all of the uncertainty out of it. But the end result was inaction. And I think mm. the result of the end you know of this sort of year long meditation was this realization that. You kind of do have to just act sometimes and start somewhere and you don't know always where it's going to go. But if you if you surround yourself with the right people and people who truly believe in the things that you believe in, that they'll sort of, you know, they will contain the things that you're building to the right things. And, you know, that that doesn't always mean it's always it's going to go the way that you expect it to go. But. And also, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be unintended consequences, but I just, I sort of just realized that I had to dive in headfirst and, and just see where it was going to take me. But, and, you know, that's sort of why I ended up at Optimism was if I was going to do that, if I was going to dive in headfirst and see where it took me, I needed to be around people that I trusted had the same value set that I did. And I didn't see that, you know, anywhere more than, than at Optimism. 
Yeah, I really resonate with that and, and empathize. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to as well, where in life, sometimes we're scared to we're, we're scared to make a move because we're worried it's going to be the wrong move. And so you end up just sort of overanalyzing and, you know, agonizing over these decisions. And then before you know it, a year can pass and you haven't really done anything. Whereas if you just, you know, the the journey up to the mountain starts with a single step. So if you just take that first step forward, oftentimes doors will open for you and you can get rid of that inertia and get some momentum going. And then, you know, and then, you know, adjust course if you need to from there, but at least get the ball rolling. Yeah. And and I think what I kind of underestimated and maybe if there's one thing that I've taken away, you know, maybe from a getting stuff done perspective at Optimism is that Really, truly anything of value takes an enormous amount of effort. And this idea that you can somehow sit there and think and understand and learn and plan out how this, you know, how this technology is going to evolve. And then all of a sudden one, you know, one day chat GPT just appears and then it's like, what, what, okay, that changes everything. Yeah. But this idea that you can just plan these things out is, is just, it's it's wrong. Like you really, you kind of just have to, what you said is correct. You kind of just have to start, start walking up the mountain and you know, you're going to, you're going to see the obstacles that you're going to see and you have to navigate them and you, and you want to surround, you surround yourself with people that, that at least have a same, the right similar, just, yeah, at least have a, a same guiding star or destination in mind. Right. And that way you can all, you at least know you're all headed. You, you may not all know how you're going to get there, but you all know where you're headed at least. Yeah, it's. I think this is especially important just because it's in in this space in particular because you know you're not you're not thinking about oh is this the right life decision for me? You're you're really thinking about is the work that I'm going to do going to help people or harm people? Right. This is like real people in the real world. And so that's why it can be so intimidating to to get started, or what, at least it was for me. It's like I, I don't want to do something that's going to hurt a lot of people, but that eventual realization that you know we want to help people, we want to build something useful for people, and if we just sit there thinking about all the different ways it could go wrong, and that's the only thing we ever do, then the end result is we, we achieve nothing. So. Right. Or you decide not to take action because maybe there's a few problems, right? Because nothing is perfect. Right. And so you go, oh, well, this isn't perfect. So why bother? So why bother? That's right. But you really, the reality is that there are a lot of ways to hurt a lot of people with technology. And, and if you're not, if you're not surrounding yourself with the right people, you need to think about that. You need to think about the motivations of the people that you're working with and the people that you're working for. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious when you rejoined Optimism. So it sounds like it would have been five people at this point when you rejoined. How many people did you think were going to be needed to accomplish the mission? Oh, boy. I don't know if I really thought about that very much back in those days. I mean, I definitely underestimated just how hard it was going to be. It was... You know, in in some regards, I was shocked that we we ever got anything out because we, you know, I 
it, it is amazing how 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 much like a couple of hackers can really slap together but it's also amazing to understand the difference between the product that we shipped the year that that I joined and something like the, the upcoming bedrock upgrade those two are on radically different levels the bedrock upgrade is is orders of magnitude more legible more robust more reliable you know tested audited it is it is like you know the bedrock code base is a professional piece of software but you know when you're when you're basically five people you know ben and carl we're working on code at that point, but we're still, you know, primarily on on research and design. So it was like me and Kevin and Mark and Kevin also had to deal with stuff like managing early partnerships. Like, you know, there wasn't a lot of engineering firepower to deploy. It was a couple people. And so I, you know, I, I think we knew that we had to hire, right? We knew that we were going to have to hire more people. We probably did underestimate exactly how many people we were going to have to hire. That's also because, you know, when you're at first we were heavily focused on engineering, and then you realize you need you need BD and you need marketing and you need you need you know you need content writers and and technical writers and you know like developing a base layer blockchain is is just so much. There's so much to do. It's amazing. It's crazy how much there is to do. But I guess that's also what makes it fun. That and the fact that it, I love crypto and I love blockchain because it touches on so many different elements of life. That's right. You know, because obviously there's the, techno the technological aspect, but then with optimism, there's this whole governance side of things. So you're touching on the cultural, historical, political. That's what keeps me interested every day. Yeah, I mean, I think that as as we grew, the vision also grew. You know, I've I've had a lot of I, I think, you know, we were even back in the plasma group days, we were we would discuss all of these sort of social things at length, you know, just have arguments and debates about what all of this was for. But yeah, as as this, you know, necessarily as we start diving into the realm of effective governance, you have to start hiring people to think about governance. And that's like a, that's a very, you know, governance is not pure mechanism design in the same way that, that, you know, on, like certain, certain on-chain mechanism design is there's, you, you know, you, you the, it kind of is mechanism design, but the tools that you're working with are, are, are not, you know, I have a hash function or, you know, I have a Merkle tree and I can achieve a certain result with a Merkle tree. It's like the tools you're working with are, are people and people's emotions. And then and, and that's hard stuff. That's like a whole, you know, that's a whole department you need to hire for. Absolutely. Okay. So going back to, to bedrock and I kind I want to talk more about, you know, so Bedrock is going to be this amazing upgrade to to the Optimism code base, but I I want to focus more on what Bedrock is supporting, and I want to circle back to 
that vision, that mission, and really what, what in your opinion makes optimism unique? I remember I should have found this tweet years and pinned it to the space, but you know, you had a tweet at one point that was like, you know, eventually all these blockchains are going to be sort of abstracted and it's really going to be the culture that is the distinguisher of these different blockchains. So what, what in your opinion makes optimism unique? Um, hmm, there's, I think there's a couple different sub questions there that I want to pick apart. I'm going to start with, well, do you want, do you want to talk first about what bedrock makes possible? Or do you want to talk about sort of the, the cultural piece first? Take your pick. Let's talk about what, what bedrock makes possible. And then the latter. Okay. So, right. Bedrock. I really, I mean, Look, you can look at the code for yourself, but Bedrock, in my opinion, is by far the 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 most advanced, and I mean advanced in the sense that it is the best, you know, most well-engineered, well-thought-out roll-up code base out there. And the point of all of the work that we're doing on Bedrock, right? Like, there's a lot of, you know, okay, end users get what? They get, they get basically the cheapest possible transactions, blah, 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 right? It's it's sort of the chain gets more reliable, the chain gets cheaper, right? And I mean, it will get cheaper quite a bit, but but there's there's other things that are actually, in my opinion, even more important. And, and it's the reason why we called it bedrock in the first place, because it's a foundation for the future that we're building. A big part of Bedrock is, is, you know, we spent so much time on Bedrock because we didn't want to have to rebuild it again. It's, the goal of Bedrock is that we can take this code base and we can maintain and manage this code base with a relatively small engineering team. And when, there's, when there are things we need to add in the future, we can add them and basically not think about it. It's easy. Some of the most important things that we can do because of Bedrock are A, switching out the proof system whenever we want. So the proof system is no longer, it's entirely separated from the rest of the system. So optimistic or eventually ZK, it doesn't matter. You can switch out the proof system and it doesn't have an impact on the rest of the system. And, and also it's very, very easy to implement alternative clients of, of optimism. Which means, you know, when when it comes to when it comes to securing an optimistic rollup, let's let, you know, let's assume we're in the optimistic rollup land, so we're not we're not at zk yet. When it comes to securing an optimistic rollup, you you really need two components, right? You need first you need a, a fault proof, and and ideally, you know, fault proofs you 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 need to get them audited, and then ideally you would have maybe a second version of the fault proof so that you can run against two fault proofs at the same time so that there, if there's a bug in fault proof A, you know, fault proof B will catch it, whatever. But then the other side of the, the equation is that the fault proof just proves that the layer two executed properly, right? If the layer two has a bug in it, if the client code has a bug in it, the fault proof is just gonna prove that the bug executed properly. And so what you really need is you need you need client diversity on layer two as well as proof diversity on layer one. And if you have client diversity on layer two, then you can run, you know, OP Aragon and OP Geth side by side. And a bug in OP Geth would get caught by, a, you know, by OP Aragon, assuming it's, a, you know, 
I mean, realistically, that'll probably happen if it if, if there's a bug in one client. And then you can run, you know, an, an OP geth proof on layer one, an OP Aragon proof on layer one, and you catch the differences. And so essentially what, what Bedrock is trying to do is it's laying the groundwork for Optimism to be the very first chain that can throw away its multi-sig, or at least can make the multi-sig a, you know, can can make upgrades, can really, really turn up the delay period for upgrades so that it's far longer than the than the fault-proof window, because that's really what gets you to, to true roll-up level security, right? So this is the, that's sort of base layer number one. That's That's what Bedrock is doing in the first step. And the other step of Bedrock is really creating this shared modular roll-up code base so that other people can also build on top of the code base. And the, you know, so the Ethereum community can have one code base that is well-maintained, highly audited, customizable, everyone can contribute to and improve. And so everyone kind of wins because they don't have to rebuild these systems from scratch. And we sort of get this explosion of, of chains in the Ethereum ecosystem with, that are running code that's going to going to last. So that's sort of the technical why Bedrock is really setting the future for what Optimism is going to be. That was really well put. Can I just I just want to restate that that the first thing uh, what I really heard there is that there's redundancy at every level of the stack. These sort of fallbacks, and then the second thing has to do with the the open source nature of everything we do at Optimism. Yes. So we don't really, yeah, we don't do anything in private, really. We don't really have private repos except for some configuration stuff in the in the gateway front end, which is private for it's for a number of reasons. It's not it's not to do with us caring about other people, you know, building products on it. It's it's half security, half if we make it open source, then people are going to expect us to maintain it a certain way, and we want the power to just do whatever we want with it. The the core code base, you know, all the all of the optimism code is free and open source, and it will make, it'll stay that way, and it is available for people to use and to expand and to play, you know, play with, and for people to compete with optimism if they want, and they they're more than welcome to do that. And you know, the goal with that really is that we that's who we are. That's what we believe the future will look like. We believe that the future will be built on these shared tools. Right now, I think a lot of people think that there's not a lot of avenues for making money with this philosophy. And we think that that's completely wrong. That's sort of what we're betting the entirety of optimism on is saying, actually, this philosophy makes you the most money. So yeah, it'll you know feel free to go try the code base out, run a bedrock node, run your own bedrock chain, and do whatever you want with it. And and we have a permissive license, so you're welcome to do whatever you want. Yeah. So you were just kind of segueing nicely into you really captured well what the what the technology is and what it's about, and then you're starting to talk about what, what does this technology support and getting into this maybe the value side of things or the cultural side of things yeah. of what makes optimism unique. Yeah. So I think this goes into understanding. Sorry, one sec. I need to reply to something. No worries. We'll cut this out later. 
<laughs> All right. I think this. He's a busy man, guys. You, you yeah, can't believe no, how busy I'm, this I'm, guy I'm, is. I'm really sorry. That was just an important message I had to reply to. What we this goes into what what optimism is like at its at its core. And I think this is something that, like I said before, this is something that I that optimism, I I hope over the next year will com- continue to communicate to the world. Because I think a lot of people see optimism as this blockchain, right? They see this, they see the layer two, and they think that that is optimism. And the reality is that optimism is essentially trying to create an alternative economic system. It's trying to take capitalism and upgrade it. And, and upgrade it in a way that that can compete with existing large-scale existing systems so effectively that it can start to replace them. We have this opportunity, right? We have this we have this blockchain system, right? It's it's a you know an efficient way to organize people and resources across the globe. Fine, that's a useful thing. That is a core thing that optimism that we you know sort of in this optimism collective which is the this group that we're all part of that's a that system is something that we need but if you if you really think about what that system can can unlock that's the interesting thing right optimism is not a, a not a technology company optimism is a social structure that happens to build technology because it supports the social structure and we'll put a pin in that one Exactly. <laughs> what optimism truly is trying to do is trying to create a digital country. We want to build something that is a self-sustaining economic system, right? Composed of thousands of people, if not, you know, many, many more online working together building things together, generating revenue, right? Generating a GDP, using that, those resources, sharing those resources to improve the base infrastructure of that economic system and make it possible for people to build bigger, better things that generate more revenue that they they can then pump back into the system, right? It's a, this is exactly the same way that countries today work in the, the analog world. But we can do it bigger and we can do it better because we're not restricted by geographical boundaries anymore, right? We can basically coordinate with anybody across the entire globe we have economic tools at our hands that none of these other people have available to them. They're too slow. They're too, they're, you know, we basically have this opportunity to not just disrupt, you know, we're not talking about making credit card fees, 10 cents cheaper. We're talking about (laughs) fully creating an alternative economic model and imbuing a value set into that economic model that values certain things that aren't being valued 
in the in the system that we're that we you know a lot of us currently exist in. Right? We're allowed you have to it. do that. We're allowed to do this. We're allowed to create our own system and say, you know what? Actually, I don't think that our our governmental systems are valuing all of the right things that need to be valued. I'm not saying that these systems aren't, you know, functional. I'm not saying that 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 they don't work. But I am saying that I I truly believe that there are, there are many 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 things that aren't being valued. Right? I mean, look how much teachers get paid in the United States. It's a joke. Right? The people who are the people who are raising your children and teaching your children to be fully fledged adults get paid nothing that's it's a joke right that's that's i mean that's ridiculous and so you know why is it that we we have this system that sort of reinforces those that value set and why is it that we've gotten to this point as as you know as a as a world that a lot of us sort of believe that we can't change anything anymore right people people sort of mix up you know, hopefulness with, with naivete. They think yeah. if you, if you even, if you even dare to, to improve anything, you're just being naive. And that, that is such a like sad way of living. And, and, and optimism is just this rejection of that entire, of that entire mindset. It's saying, you know what, we have the people, we have the resources, we have the will, we have the mindset. And and we're going to do something that for some reason people haven't done in, you know, many, many, many years, which is to dare that we can create another economic system that works better, that we can upgrade the systems that we have, we can outcompete, we can install our value sets, and we can value things that aren't currently being valued. And, and, and we actually have a chance because we have this base layer technology that makes it all possible. And and that's sort of our our advantage that's that's going to allow us to absolutely crush other people, right? Not, I mean, <laughs> take that how you will. But I'm I'm talking about establishing a new, you know, a new economic system that values people and values humans and values the contributions that we make, especially in the face of you know, this <laughs> realistically AI future, which we can get into in a while. But as we, you know, as we merge with the machines, we need a way to to preserve our, our humanity throughout that. So there's a lot there, but. There is a lot there. And I told you folks, you were in for it talking with Kelvin. That was great. I loved every minute of it. And, you know, this, some of that really reminds me of my conversation with Jing. And we talked a little bit about how, yeah, okay, you know, this is a, this is a big grandiose vision, but things have changed in the past, right? Industries, ways of living, countries that have been disrupted in the past. And I would argue that we're, we're just, we're pretty ripe at this point in time for, for another major disruption. So this big, this huge vision and the, and these big goals may not, may not be so unrealistic as, as people may seem to think. Yeah. I mean, you know, if the only thing that we achieve is to prove to people that an alternative is possible, right? I like I love to recommend people this book, Capitalist Realism. Capitalist realism starts with this quote that says it's it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism, right? And 
you know, I'm not I'm not one of these people who thinks that, oh, you know, capitalism is is the devil and we need to shut it all down. Right. Like I'm I'm you know, I, I, I function within the system and I and I see its pros and cons. But we can improve it. Right. Like we look around and we and, and, and the reality is it's not perfect. I mean, if it was perfect, none of us would be, you know, why would we even be trying to build the stuff that we're building? It's not perfect. We can improve it. We can make it much, much better. And we can improve it in a way that actually, you know, genuinely dramatically improves our lives. And improve, you know, brings back the sense of, of control and participation into the systems that essentially rule our lives and if the only thing that optimism achieves is to convince a chunk of people that it is possible to create an alternative, I think we will have succeeded. Yeah, I just want to underline a point you made there, Kelvin, and it's something that you've I've, I've heard you say before, and it's that, you know, when we talk about things like retroactive public goods funding, wh- what we need to be careful about and really convey there is this isn't charity, Right. It's simply better allocating capital to um, individuals and, and organizations that are creating impact. Yeah, that's completely correct. I think when a lot of people hear retroactive public goods funding, it has this it, kind of nonprofit sort of it, it, exactly. connotation it has or something. Nonprofit connotation. But the reality is, you know, when my city government builds a road, do I think that that's charity? No, I don't think that a road is charity. The government builds a road because all of the people who use the road, ex- you know, extract value out of it and 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 receive value right. out of it. And we can we can actually increase the GDP of our system by building a road. And right? your town and city benefits from those Everybody improvements benefits. to infrastructure. Yeah. Exactly. And so retroactive public goods funding, you know, maybe we need to do a better job with this, with how we communicate it. But the reality is it's not charity. Retroactive public goods funding is about funding digital roads. It's about increasing the GDP of the optimism collective by funding the digital roads that make it possible to build applications that generate revenue that go back into the, you know, where that revenue, part of that revenue goes back into the Optimism Collective and makes it possible to fund even more roads. We're not doing something extremely radical. We're doing something that, quite frankly, seems completely obvious and kind of seems ridiculous that nobody else is doing this. You know, fund the roads. Why, you know, everybody else is building the, building the taverns and then no one's building the roads. <laughs> the, the casinos. <laughs> Everyone's building the casinos. They're, you know, they're pumping money into the casinos and you need to get to the casinos on these like dirt paths that maybe you should be building roads to your casinos. If you're, I mean, I don't want to be building casinos, but uh, this he's not is anti-casinos that, folks. He just thinks we should have better roads to them. I, I think that the other chains can focus more on, on building roads to casinos and we'll, we'll focus on building. I mean, whatever. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking there. oh man that's great kelvin we're coming up close to an hour i I feel like we could just keep going on and on but i what i'd like to do is just have you back on again soon is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap this one up and i I do have one final question for you statement should have thought of a closing statement before i i even got on this call i have i have a closing statement how about that i'm i'm feeling very enthusiastic after talking with kelvin 
And it reminds me of why I was interested in crypto to begin with. It was something life-changing, something much bigger than what we've seen recently. So if this is the kind of stuff that excites you and if you're interested in, in it as well, I would encourage you to take a look at Optimism and check out what we're doing. Because as Kelvin said, this is a collective. This is the Optimism Collective. So we are very interested in meeting other like minds that want to help build this with us together and that understand that in order to have a better future, you need to take that initial step. There you go. That's my closing statement. All right. And I'll follow it up with saying that I am deadly serious about every single thing that I've said on this Twitter space. You know, I don't just say this stuff because it sounds good. You know, I don't just like optimism is not just sitting here saying, oh, we want to create this digital country just because it's like a meme. This is about this is about creating a digital country. This is about creating something that hasn't existed before. This is about taking crypto, taking about all this stuff that we've been working on for all these years and leveraging it into a little pocket of the world that is better, right? Leveraging it into what all of this stuff was always meant to be. And so if you're out there and you're thinking, you know, you're working on a project right now and you're, you're questioning it, you're wondering what the, the value of your project is, come talk to me, come, you know, come talk to other people at Optimism and build the thing that crypto was always supposed to be. Be a part of the thing, the way that crypto is going to prove itself to the rest of the world is something that, that the rest of the world can't ignore, not just some chain where Web2 projects can go and deploy and, you know, and whatever, some big company makes money off of, you know, getting to say that they, they deployed on crypto or they deployed on some blockchain. Actually do the thing, actually make the change, right? We have, we have an opportunity now, and I don't know if the opportunity is going to stay here forever, but I think there's one place where this is happening and it's within optimism. So come talk to me. Come help build a digital country. Come help build the thing that makes it impossible for other people to ignore crypto. And, you know, don't forget that you can still change the world today. Here, here. I think it should be clear. It certainly is clear to me, and I, I think it's clear to everyone listening that Kelvin, as well as everybody else at Optimism and OP Labs, really are about that life. So, Kelvin, I want to close this with a little bit on a, on a little lighter note. I have kind of a spicy question for you. People listening may not be aware, but there's a handful of good freestyle rappers at Optimism. Oh, and you've been, privy, you've been privy to some of these ciphers where people have been known to rhyme a few words. So my question for you is... Who is the best freestyle rapper at Optimism, in your opinion? I, I, I think the answer, quite clearly, is Carl is the best at getting into the flow state that you need to be in to freestyle. You know, it's the same thing as when you're making music. You really need to be in the zone. 
and you can't be thinking too hard about it. You kind of just have to feel it. I think Carl is is by far the best at sort of, I think when you start freestyling, there's a lot of anxiety that comes with it because you want it, you're worried about sounding stupid. And Carl's by far the least worried about sounding stupid. And that sounds like a joke, but it really is what helps you helps you be a, a really good freestyle rapper. But he's also the you know the only one who freestyles in the shower, which probably helps too. If you want to learn I to can... freestyle, a very good strategy is you go in the shower, you pick a word, and you just sit there and you rhyme every single word that you can possibly think of that rhymes with that word. I can second I can second that. I've seen Carl freestyle and it's almost like he becomes a different person. He adopts he really steps into that freestyle persona. I think he I think he should have a nom de plume, you know, he should have an MC name. I think that might help us distinguish, you know, when is Carl talking and when is Carl the rapper freestyling. So, yeah, I'm going to think on that. Flossy or something. We call him <laughs> Floss. Yeah, Carly Floss. How about that? Carly Floss. I love it. That, that's great. Yeah. Carly Floss, MC, MC, MC Carl Floss. That's right. MC Flossy Bossy. Okay. We'll keep noodling on it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, I think we're going to close this out. Kelvin, thank you so much. This was everything I hoped for and more. And let's get you on here again soon because I feel like we barely scratched the surface here. Let's, let's do it. Awesome. Thank All right. you, everybody, for coming. Come hang out next time. Build the future, et cetera, et cetera. Do you want to do the sign-off, Kelvin? By the way, everybody, that, that sign-off, Kelvin created that. Have you heard how I sign these off? No, I haven't. See you on the internet. Stay optimistic. Ooh. I do say that a lot. See you on the internet. That was a Kelvin original. A lot of, yeah, I borrowed that from him. So stay optimistic, everybody. We'll see you on the internet. See you later. Bye.